you asked the question earlier about um, you know man-made psychedelics versus natural psychedelics. I'm very much interested in companies that are developing new psychedelic molecules. So there are plenty of companies out there that are taking the the classic psychedelics, psilocybin, LSD, MDMA, and trying to get them trying to get them approved by the FDA. I think that's interesting and it's useful, but the truth is is that those molecules, you can't really patent them. There's no real IP protection around them because they've been around for forever. So if you want to build a real business, you need to have some real IP. And so developing a new molecule is probably better from a business sense in the long run. Hey guys, welcome back to the Fort Podcast. My name is Chris Powers and I want to thank you for joining me today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube. Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. Brom, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. To everybody listening, I met Brom, I don't know, maybe four or five months ago. Uh, my good friend Adam Blake and I were having a conversation about psychedelics, and I was interested in investing in the space. And that led me to meet with several people, and uh, that brought Brom and I together and, yeah, ended up investing in his latest fund. And um, so today I'm going to do my best job to try and learn more about what I invested in. <laughs> it's it's always good to do due diligence, even if it's after the fact. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's just start. Set the stage with kind of your career and kind of, you know, how you got your chops and what led you into this world of psychedelics. Sure. As far as psychedelics go, I've been interested in psychedelics since around the time that I was in college. Um, I had I, I was a kid that kind of grew up in a somewhat strict household. You know, my dad was in the military and I grew up around like, you know, a lot of various sort of conservative people. And that really rubbed off on me. I was never like a teenager that drank or did drugs or anything like that. Right. But um, I I was always interested in just weird things. And I started reading a lot about psychedelics, hearing about them on podcasts, um, heard about how they made a lot of changes in people's mental health. Um, including people that were, you know, in the military, people that were coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan that had PTSD, which was something that I had seen a lot of up close because of just the, you know, the family that I grew up in. Um, my, my dad actually started a nonprofit that dealt with veterans that were disabled, um, which includes mental issues like PTSD. So I was around a lot of people that were suffering from that sort of thing as a teenager. And so you know, when I started reading about how these things were being used to treat people that had been, you know, harmed in that way, my ears sort of perked up. I also was trying to figure out ways to bring um, elements of, I guess, spirituality into my life without having to be religious. And, you know, people talk about the mystical experiences. And then my cousin, who had had a very traumatic childhood, told me that she actually went to like an underground psychedelic therapy session. And she told me how it really helped change a lot of her perspectives on, you know, what happened to her as a kid. And so the confluence of all those things led me to sort of try psychedelics. And um, I, my mind was blown. And um, for the past 10 years or so, that has been something that has been sort of a practice in my life. You know, at least a couple times a year, I will do some sort of psychedelic, usually in a very intentional setting, not, you know, at some party or rave or anything, but, you know, alone in my house or with some close friends. And I feel like it has played a huge part in, you know, sort of keeping me sane or keeping me sort of mentally healthy. Um, and, you know, I was in a pretty high pressure career for, you know, the past 10 years. I uh, was a quantitative researcher and portfolio manager at a couple different hedge funds. And, um, you know, I was also doing advanced, um, you know, schooling. Like I have a master's degree in computer science from Georgia Tech. So I, I was in a lot of intense situations, both professionally and academically. And I felt like psychedelics really helped me kind of keep a cool head and keep, a, keep everything in perspective. Um, and, but, but around 2020, uh, in, in the middle of the pandemic, I was kind of getting sick of the hedge fund thing, which I had been doing for almost 10 years. And if you know people that work in hedge funds, you know that it's pretty common for us to sort of burn out and kind of, you know, get over the whole hedge fund thing. And I decided I was just going to leave the hedge fund world. And I didn't know what I was going to do next. I just knew I wanted to do something. new. So I quit my job, at the hedge fund. And it just so happened that I quit around the time where there were starting to be 
articles in Bloomberg talking about, hey, there was a psychedelic company that IPO'd in Canada. And I remember seeing that first headline. I think it was in like April of 2020. And I was like, wait, there are real companies doing stuff with psychedelics that are actually IPOing? Like, what? What is this? Because I had, I had always followed psychedelics just sort of from the research perspective or from the I'm going to do it for my own personal purposes perspective. I never thought in a million years that there would be a real like above ground industry being developed around these things. So my mind was kind of blown. And, and all of a sudden, I, I had quit my hedgeman job. So I had a lot of free time. I was just living off savings. And I started spending, you know, 40, 50 hours a week just reading about these companies I realized that no one on the internet was talking about these things that had any real financial background. A lot of these companies in the early days were IPOing on, you know, these Canadian stock exchanges of, you know, questionable refute, I guess. And so there were a lot of like pump and dump articles written about them, but there wasn't anyone doing any real analysis. So I put my hedge fund guy hat back on and I started a podcast where I analyzed a lot of these companies from an investment perspective and I started interviewing some of the CEOs. And that podcast kind of started getting a little bit more popular. And at that point, I was just sort of doing it for fun. I didn't really know what I was going to do next professionally. I certainly wasn't making any money from the podcast. Um, but I started getting emails from people that were saying, Hey, Brom, you know, I've got a hundred grand I want to put into the psychedelics world. What do you recommend that I do? And I also had a couple of startups in the psychedelics world that reached out to me, you know, asking if I could help promote their company or help them raise money or something. And so I sort of realized wow, I have potential LPs and also potential portfolio companies kind of coming to me because of this podcast that I've built. And maybe, you know, I, I do need to get a, another source of income at some point. Uh, you know, I need a job. And so maybe I should start a psychedelics fund. And, you know, I have the hedge fund background and there's some overlap between hedge fund and venture capital, but not tons of overlap. And so I, I had conversations with friends that were successful in venture and they sort of filled in the knowledge gaps that I felt that I had. And, um, you know, fast forward to, I guess, September of last year, I, I set up the structure for this venture capital fund called Empath Ventures, started raising money. And, um, you know, now I'm talking to you. I love it, man. Well, congrats. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, I think it's awesome. You know, psychedelics kind of piqued my interest. Similar to you, there's I've had a, a few friends that started talking about it. I just noticed that word kept popping up on the Internet more. And candidly, I've never really talked to anybody, you know, that not, you know, there's people that use it at like a rave. That's a different experience. But for the folks that were kind of using it to feel better or, you know, more from a medicinal standpoint, I just had never heard anybody had a bad experience. It was just like good experience after good experience. Um, had a friend that was a Navy SEAL and, uh, you know, he talked a lot about how this was one of the only things that really worked for him. So um, that kind of led, you know, me to be interested in it. Um, obviously, I know very little. It seems really early. And so let's kind of uh, dissect how this industry works. So let's just start. Why have psychedelics been illegal? Why are they, have they been kind of shunned for decades? Is there, is it a law? Is it something that happened? Why are these things not obviously um, more kind of mainstream than they, they have been as of late? So what's really interesting is that um, when psychedelics first started becoming a thing in the U.S., they were being used for medicinal purposes. Um, LSD was synthesized by a pharmaceutical company called Sandos, and it was originally marketed to psychiatrists as a drug to be used you know, in like a therapeutic setting. And um, this was, psychedelics were also heavily used by researchers. I believe um, between 1950 and the mid-1960s, there were over a thousand papers published from you know, various research institutions on the benefits of psychedelics for certain mental health purposes. Um, but of course, you know, the psychedelics in some sense sort of escaped the lab and you know, started becoming a popular thing um, for, I guess, recreational purposes, you know, Woodstock and, and all that sort of thing. <laughs> and um, what happened was that unfortunately occurred at the same time that there were there was a lot of you know other things going on in the country like the anti-Vietnam War protests. We also had a lot of people coming back from Vietnam that were hooked on you know morphine and opiates, which are not psychedelics. But there was sort of this growing awareness that maybe there was a, a drug problem happening. And um, you know Nixon he sort of put together the uh, substance. I forget the actual name of the act, but I think it was in 1973 the substance. Substance Abuse Act, Substance Control Act, basically that act and the acts that resulted from it created the DEA, started the war on drugs, created the whole scheduling system. And because of the 
the, the association between psychedelics and sort of the anti-war movement. They sort of lumped psychedelics in there with all the other drugs. And not only did that make it illegal for people to use this stuff recreationally, but it basically put a, you know, put a muzzle on any research going on in an academic institution. I guess technically, if you were a researcher, you could probably still get permission to do research on this stuff, but it was basically career suicide, right? It would be sort of like someone today saying, hey, why don't we do a study on the benefits of heroin, right? Like, yeah. I guess legally, you might be able to figure out a way to get it done, but no one's going to take you seriously. And that was just kind of what happened. So um, all that stuff got, you know, shoved underground. And then I guess, um, you know, as the decades went by, people's attitudes slowly started changing. And a couple of like diehard psychedelic supporters started um, raising money to fund studies. I think they very intentionally and intelligently started off by positioning these studies as let's help the veterans. Because, you know, if there's one thing that like everyone will get behind in the US, it's like, let's help veterans, right? It's kind of a, a bipartisan thing. And um, so that sort of started getting the FDA to open the doors. And, um, you know, once there's a crack in the door, you can open it up more. And uh, now we're starting to see studies being done on psychedelics for all sorts of different purposes, both mental health and non-mental health disorders. And we're starting to see all these private companies pop up around them. So now we're sort of in the second uh, psychedelic revolution, I guess. Is Big Pharma for this or against this? Or I'm assuming more against it? Or they get, if it's going to happen, they're going to find a way to participate? Yeah, I think it's closer to the latter. Um, I think they're definitely going to find a way to participate. Um, one of the interesting things about big pharma is that they generally don't do tons of innovation on their own. Kind of, they're a, a lot of those big pharma companies are closer to like merger and acquisition companies than research companies. They watch startup pharma companies and they buy the ones that are successful. Um, this is a generalization, but it's largely true. And um, there, there have been big pharma deals with some of these small psychedelic companies. Another thing to note is that um, the initial issues that psychedelics are going after are mostly mental health issues. And most of the mental health drugs that are on the market right now, you know, Prozac and uh, these sorts of SSRI drugs, they've been around for a long time now. And they're generally, most of them are at the point where you can create generic versions of them. So it's not like big pharma is profiting massively off of these generic, um, you know, SSRIs or antidepressant drugs. So I think that big pharma is looking for new, you know, blockbuster mental health drugs. And, you know, there may be a way that they can turn psychedelics into that. So I, I don't think the big pharma is against this at all. Got it. Sorry, mom, but I've, uh, I've taken psychedelics before and, um, probably not for medicinal uses, but I will say the two times that I did, uh, it was an incredible experience. Um, and so I want to lead with that and say, what is maybe let's break down what they are and like, what are they doing inside of the body that's causing these, you know, mental reactions that people are, you know, using as healing power? Yeah. Um, so, you know, psychedelics, just to be very clear, are drugs like LSD, um, psilocybin, DMT, that sort of thing. Um, and most psychedelic drugs are drugs that function by agonizing serotonin receptors. Uh, there are 17 different serotonin receptors in your body, and there's this very specific one called the 5-HT2A receptor that, when agonized, creates this sort of hallucinogenic effect. And um, how that hallucinogenic effect translates into the positive therapeutic outcomes is not something that science has a full grasp on. But um, I can say subjectively what seems to happen is that the psychedelic state allows people to view issues in their life from a different perspective. And oftentimes, viewing things from a different perspective can act as a very powerful catalyst for change. Um, if you can view something that you've been struggling with from an objective, you know, different angle, it can really help you sort of make that change. Um, what's happening biologically, again, this is something that is still not fully understood. But the general mechanism of action seems to be that psychedelics increase neuroplasticity, meaning that neurons are, you know, connecting to neurons that they wouldn't normally talk to. And this is what allows for that perspective shift. Got it. Are all psychedelics man-made or, or are some natural? Yeah. So the, the classic example of a natural psychedelic would be, you know, magic mushrooms, right? So those have been around for forever. They've, they're not man-made. Um, also more exotic things like ayahuasca, which is a brew of two different plants that is, you know, consumed in the Amazon. 
that's fully natural. But psychedelics also have a long history of successful man-made versions. So LSD was synthesized in 1943, which still kind of blows my mind that someone could create something like that without a computer or the internet. Um, Also things like MDMA and ketamine, which are not pure psychedelics in the true sense of the word, but also drugs that kind of get lumped into that category were also man-made. And, um, you know, this is one of the things that I think is very different between the psychedelics industry and the cannabis industry is that cannabis is an extremely complicated plant. And even with today's technology, no one has really made a synthetic version of cannabis that is preferable in any way to just regular cannabis. But psychedelic molecules in general are quite simple. And like I sort of just said, there's this long history of very popular, totally man-made psychedelic drugs being invented. So I think that that opens the door to a lot more pharmaceuticalization of psychedelics as opposed to cannabis, which is just at the end of the day, it seems like the best thing you can do is, you know, grow some weed plants in your warehouse. It seems like maybe cannabis. And when you mentioned, um, I forgot what you said was from the Amazon, but then you take like peyote, ayahuasca, ayahuasca. A lot of this stuff has been going on for generations, thousands of years. And you know, it, tribes of folks using it for more of these kind of spiritual enhance, enhancements. How far back do psychedelics go? I, I know that you're not a history professor, but how long have humans been taking these things? It seems like it goes back kind of to the beginning, honestly. I mean, the the Amazon, the traditions with ayahuasca and the Amazon seem to just go back as far as you can look. Um, there are magic mushrooms that are kind of native to Mexico. And there are certain tribes there that claim to have been doing them since the beginning of time. Um, you know, and if you, if you listen to, if you watch the history channel, you know, late at night, you'll hear people talking about how, you know, certain things in the Bible, like the burning bush were actually, you know, psychedelic caused hallucinations and things. So it it seems like there are, I think ergot was, uh, a particular type of like psychedelic mold that was common in, uh, Europe. And so, People think that a lot of these like mystical stories from, you know, the ancient Greek times and that sort of thing might have been caused by psychedelics. So it seems like they've they've existed for forever. Okay, and now we're in 2022 um, and they're making a comeback and they probably have been for the last, you know, for, for a while. But it seems like, you know, on that exponential growth curve, like we're kind of at the bottom, but we're, we're really at a, a liftoff point. Can you just set the stage maybe with some data points of kind of maybe, you know, what the scene looks like right now from a pure economic, um, you know, financial standpoint? How big is this starting to get? Yeah, I, I think that's a good question. So, I mean, just to give some timelines, um, in May of 2020, that was when the first IPO related to psychedelics happened. So prior to, you know, May of 2020, there were no publicly traded psychedelics companies I think the first private psychedelics company probably got started around 2017 or something. So prior to 2017, there was no for-profit psychedelics industry. You maybe had some research going on at universities. Um, I have a chart up on my screen that I could probably send you later if you want to put it in the show notes. But um, in 2017, there were six financings for private psychedelics companies. And the total amount of money that went into that was you know, $10 million. So in 2017, six companies raised $10 million. In 2021, 55 companies raised $595 million. Um, so about 177% CAGR in you know, the, the amount of funding um, since from 2017 to 2021. So pretty big influx, at least, of funding. And then, of course, we've seen, these are more qualitative data points, but we've seen very well-known investors like Peter Thiel and Christian Angermeyer get involved in funding some of the bigger known psychedelics companies. Um, Compass Pathways is probably the most well-known for-profit psychedelics company. They IPO'd in 2020. They're most likely going to be the first company to get FDA approval for any sort of psychedelic company. And they're backed by both, you know, Peter Thiel and Christian Angermeyer. Um, so, you know, we're starting to see some real heavy hitters get involved in the psychedelics industry. And, um, you know, just to sort of like toot my own horn a little bit, uh, you know, some other big Silicon Valley folks, Mark Andreessen and Chris Dixon of Andreessen Horowitz, both, you know, backed my fund. So, um, you know, people are people that maybe would not normally be associated with psychedelics are starting to kind of get involved. And uh, I think that's what's driving a lot of these you know, increases in funding that you're seeing. I love it. I know when you tell other people, you say 
Mark Andreessen, Chris Dixon, and Chris Powers have backed my fund. That's right. But I, I actually lead with Chris Powers. <laughs> I say Chris Powers first. Yeah. All right. They, they're like, who's Mark Andreessen? They're like, I love Chris Powers, though. <laughs> okay. I have a hundred questions, but I maybe I should have asked this earlier. How do we define as of today what is legal in the, the psychedelic space and what is still illegal? This is a this is a good question and it comes up a lot. Um, so the first thing, very simply, there's there's nothing legal. There is no legal market for this um, in the in the U.S. with the, with the exception of ketamine, and I can get into that later. But all there there are certain states and jurisdictions that have like decriminalized mushrooms. You know, Oregon did that. But by and large, all of this stuff is still, you know, these are still controlled substances. There's no store that you can walk into in the, anywhere in the U.S. and like legally buy this stuff. The companies that my venture fund is investing in are companies that are doing research and that are following sort of the FDA, you know, process of getting a drug approved. So these are basically biotech companies that happen to be focusing on drugs that are psychedelic. So these are companies that are, you know, not breaking the law. They're, they have all the DEA and FDA licenses to do this research. Um, that said, there is certainly a part of the industry that is kind of operating underground. This is sort of the existing recreational market. And I do get pitch decks every day that are like, hey, Brom, we've got like a warehouse in Oregon where it's kind of legal. And I'm like, I just immediately, you know, delete it. Like, that's yeah. not <laughs> the kind of thing that that's that's not the kind of th that's my risk tolerance is, you know, not that high. Um, so there are certainly people out there doing that. Um it's kind of an open secret that a lot of the big cannabis players um, are, you know, growing mushrooms in their warehouses and, you know, using the empty space they have in there. Um, but, you know, they're breaking the law. And I also don't know that growing, you know, mushrooms is going to be a very profitable business in the long run. I think the, the real upside is in taking these things, turning them into pharmaceuticals, getting them approved by the FDA. And so that's kind of what I'm focused on. Um, and then also investing in sort of the auxiliary picks and shovels infrastructure plays around psychedelics, but none of the gray market, black market stuff. So does the uh, does the approval by the FDA make this legal or is there some law that we're waiting for from Washington, which makes it legal, which then allows companies to go to the FDA? If that makes sense. That yeah, that's that's a good question. So. Um, the DEA has this, these different schedules of drugs. There's like Schedule One controlled substance, Schedule Two. All the psychedelics are Schedule One, which means that they're you know illegal and there's no possible medical benefit. My understanding is that if the FDA approves a drug, it basically automatically gets rescheduled, so it get bumped down to something that can be prescribed by a doctor automatically. And I know you don't work at the FDA, but I'm sure you've you know chatted with folks like. What is it going to take for the FDA after all these decades to go, you know what, this is actually probably some pretty good stuff that we should um, allow people to take, you know, in a controlled environment? So the FDA is already very much in favor of this, um, from what I can tell. So the FDA has this thing called breakthrough therapy designation. And what that means is that if the FDA sees that there's a particular trial that seems to be so much better than whatever the next best treatment out there is, they will give a trial breakthrough therapy designation, which is basically like hand-holding and kind of a fast track to approval. The FDA does not give this out to every trial or even most trials, right? This is the thing that is reserved for things that they're very excited about that they think have real potential. And the FDA has given three different psychedelic clinical trials breakthrough therapy designation. Um, one of those is uh, the MDMA for PTSD program. Um, and that is likely to be approved probably before 2024, I would say. So I, I think the FDA is already watching the space closely and is, you know, the, their actions suggest that they are okay with this stuff proceeding to the general public, assuming, of course, that no, you know, negative data comes out of any trials that are in process right now. Yep. As far as like PTSD for, um, for veterans, does, does the potential psychedelic that, that would get approved uh, displace like Xanax or um, some type of uh, anti-anxiety medicine or or what would it kind of take the place of or what mm. are they thinking? Do you know? Yeah. So the interesting thing about PTSD is that, you know, for depression, there are SSRIs, for anxiety, there are Xanax and things like that. For depression or sorry, for PTSD, there really isn't a established best practice for treatment. 
Um, PTSD is very difficult to treat. Uh, their cognitive behavioral therapy seems to be the best thing, but it's not super effective. Um, so part of the reason why you might want to go after PTSD if you're a drug company is, first of all, you're going to help a lot of people, but also because there's not a lot of competition from other therapies out there. It's kind of uh, you know an orphan indication, if that makes sense. That said, I think a lot of these mental health issues uh, are kind of correlated with each other. If you have one, you might have another. So people with PTSD often have depression and anxiety. And so a lot of these guys are on antidepressants and things like Xanax. So we've kind of established that there's just kind of a gray area right now in the market um, of yeah. sorts. I mean, you've heard about folks at Google. You've heard about folks creating these kind of dojos and people are starting to take micro doses to go to work. And so it's, is it fair to say there's just kind of this, you know, don't look kind of mentality right now. We all kind of agree it's a good thing as long as it's being used in proper ways, that kind of underground economy is just starting to build. I don't know if I'm asking that right, but it's what it feels like. Yeah. I mean, we can get into whether or not microdosing is actually useful later, but yeah, there, there are certainly, especially <laughs> on, uh, on the, you know, in places like, you know, LA and San Francisco, it's like everyone you talk to has done psychedelics, if, if not currently <laughs> doing them, you know? <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I think there's certainly, um, they're certainly becoming more and more popular, possibly too popular, you know, for the moment, you know, there might be a little bit too much hype at the moment, but, um, yeah, I, I would say that, in a professional environment, at least in LA, like you could probably tell your boss that you did psychedelics last weekend and he'd be like, cool, you know, <laughs> it's like not, it's not a problem. All right. Well then let's just kind of use what you just said. You are investing. So clearly um, we'll take this from your perspective of the world. There are useful cases of psychedelics and there might be things that aren't so useful. So you're probably investing in the useful stuff. So let's kind of break out what you're investing in and excited about, and then maybe some misconceptions that, you know, others think would be hot that you're kind of not so hot on. So what I am mostly interested in, you asked the question earlier about, um, you know, man-made psychedelics versus natural psychedelics. I'm very much interested in companies that are developing new psychedelic molecules. So there are plenty of companies out there that are taking the, the classic psychedelics, psilocybin, LSD, MDMA, and trying to get them trying to get them approved by the FDA. I think that's interesting and it's useful, but the truth is is that those molecules you can't really patent them. There's no real IP protection around them because they've been around for forever. So, if you want to build a real business, you need to have some real IP. And so, developing a new molecule is probably better from a business sense in the long run. Also, these new molecules um can potentially be better than the old ones for a lot of people. So the the old molecules, the classic psychedelics, they're great, they're powerful, you know, I love them, but they're certainly not for everyone. You know, the the trips can be very intense, they can be very long. Not everyone has, you know, 8 hours that they can just take off from work um to go and do this sort of thing. Um they also can cause, you know, spikes in blood pressure and so if you're a person that has like a heart condition or something, it might not be best for you to take them and in fact, the FDA does not allow people that have, you know, high blood pressure or pre-existing heart conditions to take part in these trials for that reason. So if you can create a new psychedelic that is maybe safer for people that have certain pre-existing conditions, um, maybe has a shorter trip time, maybe has less variance around the intensity of the trip so that people, you know, have a less probability of having a bad trip. Um, these are all sorts of things that you could potentially engineer into a new psychedelic molecule. And so most of the companies that I'm investing in are trying to build something like what I just described. Okay. And how, why would microdosing, um, you kind of maybe said it's overrated or maybe it's not as effective as people want to give it credit to. How do you differentiate that from what you just talked about? Yeah. So first of all, the data, the studies around the, the macro dosing of psychedelics, you know, taking a large dose of psychedelics and then maybe having some therapy afterwards, the data around that is incredibly strong and it's like every study kind of agrees with every other study this is like a good thing the data around microdosing is super mixed um and it's not entirely clear from the data if it's actually useful or if it's just a placebo effect also most psychedelics um you build up a tolerance very fast like if you did mushrooms two days in a row the second day would not be nearly as powerful as the first because your serotonin receptors kind of get you know worn out for lack of a better word and uh, so if you're hitting your receptors, you know, every day with a microdose, um, 
I think you might be causing some problems for yourself in the long run. Um, that said, you know, I know a lot of people that microdosing say that they love it, but I'm, I'm uh, maybe a little bit less bullish on microdosing as a relative to macrodosing. Um, but of course, that's something that could be fixed with the proper engineering, right? So maybe someone can create a novel psychedelic molecule that is appropriate for um, microdosing. I don't know if we talked about this, but is there also something maybe that you invested in or that um, is interesting where um, you could actually take something to stop the trip? Is there is there a stopper? Yes. So there are various stoppers. Um, none of the companies that I've invested in so far are working with those. But um, yeah, I think that's an... So there, first of all, yes, there are various stoppers. Um and you know let's say you know lsd lasts for eight hours it's not entirely clear that you need to experience the full eight hours to you know have a positive therapeutic outcome so maybe you only need two hours and so you could take it and then take the stopper and then you still get the same you know therapeutic benefit i think those sorts of questions are still very much you know they need we need data we need studies actually done to to um you know know anything about this for sure but it's definitely interesting um, there's also this other movement to maybe remove the psychedelic, the hallucinogenic effect of psychedelics entirely. There are a few companies that are working on that. And it's another open question of, can you get the therapeutic benefits of psychedelics without having the, you know, hallucinations basically. And, uh, again, a big open question. All right. I'm fascinated by something you said earlier, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but you said um, you're intentional that a couple times a year. You'll take yeah. some psychedelics and, um, you know, use it maybe as personal therapy. So can you just go a little deeper? Uh, when do you know that it's time to take it? Is it when you have a lot on your mind or a problem you want to think through? Like, how, how do you think about that, you know, those couple times a year? Yeah, so it totally varies. Um, you know, I've certainly had long stretches of sometimes it's like I'll do it, you know, three or four months apart. I've also had periods where I've waited, I think, 18 months to two years to do it again. Um, it's really just kind of whenever I feel like I need a reset, you know, it's like my computer's going a little slow. Maybe I should restart the computer. Um, and so, yeah, I will do it. Oftentimes, I'll just do it alone in my house with an eye mask on, and just kind of lay on the bed and, uh, you know, let the feeling sort of wash over me. I, I've, I've also certainly had a few, you know, more recreational experiences, which are quite, you know, beautiful, too. I think the trying to create a firm delineation between therapeutic and recreational um, purposes is maybe not the most useful thing because, you know, having fun or recreation can be incredibly therapeutic, right? Um, as long as you're not hurt, as long as you're not hurting anyone or yourself. Um, but yeah, I think it's just when you need, when you feel like you need that mental reboot. And if you look at some of the data that's come out of the Compass Pathways studies, um, where they were looking at psilocybin for depression it seems like the depressive scores will often stay lower for up to, you know, about 12 months after taking the psychedelic. But of course, that varies depending on the person. And it also varies on the types of, you know, what's going on in your life. Like if you're in a, if you're in a stressful situation, whether it's work-related or relationship-related, um, you know, just taking a psychedelic isn't going to fix what's going on in your life, right? It might make you really realize that you need to change what's going on in your life, but it's not actually going to make the change for you. And so if you go into the psychedelic experience, have all these realizations, and then don't do anything about it, well, you're not really going to be helped much. Yeah. I don't know if there's data on this, but that, that's, that's, that's fascinating. Is there any data that the realizations that you have while you are on psychedelics, you will actually execute on when you go back to being, call it normal? Well, this is why there, there's this concept in psychedelics called integration or integration therapy. And um, the whole point of integration therapy is you sit there and you talk to someone after the trip and you talk through what it is you realize and you sort of create a plan for you know how to implement these things. And you know it turns out that um, in some of the studies that I've looked at, they split everyone up into three groups. And um, the, the groups were like, the psychedelics plus the integration therapy, just the psychedelic and just the therapy. And of course, the people that did the psychedelics and the therapy had the best outcomes. 
But it turns out that actually the people that just had the therapy were next best and the people that just did the psychedelics were kind of at the bottom. So I think it just goes to show that without having proper support, um, you know, it, it, you may not be helping yourself that much just by just by taking the drugs. Yeah. I don't mean to get too personal, but like when you're doing no, it please. or maybe when somebody's doing it, do you um, just so that you make your time most effective? Do, will you write down like maybe an issue or a problem or something that you want to think about during that period? Or do you just kind of let your mind go where it goes and hopefully it remembers to think about the things that were causing you stress before? Yeah, this. so this is sort of the process of intention setting. And it's pretty common in psychedelic circles for people to you know try to meditate on what they want to get out of the experience. That said, once you've you know taken one of these substances, your mind is kind of going to do what it's going to do. And I've had some very interesting conversations with people who thought they were going to get one thing out of the experience, and they got something totally different. One of my favorite examples of this is this guy I know who's like a hedge fund trader dude, and you know he he like a lot of people hears about psychedelics in the context of oh you know Steve Jobs did psychedelics and he ended up like building the iPhone and I, I hear about all these people that take psychedelics and get all these crazy business ideas so Brom you've told me about psychedelics now I'm going to do psychedelics and I'm going to get all these like ideas for my you know trading strategies and my hedge fund and this and that and I'm like okay sure you know <laughs> cool and so this guy he he ended up doing his psychedelics and then we met up for coffee like a week later and I said hey how you know how was it man what did you get those uh, you know those trading ideas that you were looking for and he just was like looking at the ground like almost kind of ashamed and he just says you know the that's what I went in thinking about but you know the mushrooms basically just told me that I was an idiot and I needed to focus on my daughter and not the stupid trading strategies and money so like he you know he was shown that he needs to, you know, pay more attention to his family life, which I think is great. So yeah, just because you focus on something going into the experience doesn't mean that's what you're going to actually be thinking about when you're in the experience. Yeah. I could see myself going into that uh, psychedelic and coming out and being like, buy Apple. I just spent eight <laughs> hours and I'm going to buy Apple. It's certainly possible. I mean, I've heard people say things like, I didn't understand cryptocurrency or bitcoin until i took psychedelics and honestly that stuff doesn't really resonate with me because when i am having those experiences the last thing i can think about is business and money it's usually about you know more family and relationship type stuff yep i love it man this is fascinating um all right let's talk about um kind of like now let's move purely to kind of business and in your recent letter it. you said Empath's portfolio is diversified along three key dimensions, receptor, target, indication, and time to market. So first question yeah. is, what does that mean? Sure. So, you know, portfolio diversification, very important. And um, But diversification, you know, what are you diversified along? So I said there are those three axes. The first one is receptor target. So there are different types of receptors in your brain that psychedelics can target. And um you can sort of use those receptor targets as ways to categorize the different drugs. So the classic psychedelics like psilocybin and LSD and you know, DMT, they target the serotonin receptor 5-HT2A. There are other psychedelic-like compounds like ketamine that target the NMDA receptor. And then there are more exotic psychedelics like Ibogaine and Salvia that you know, target something called the KOR receptor. And so the point of you know, stating that is just that all the drugs that target a specific receptor are very similar. And so you're going to get, you know, probably everything related to them is going to be correlated, whether it's FDA's actions on them, whether it's the types of diseases that they're useful for treating. And so it's better to build a diversified portfolio against, you know, these different types of receptors that are out there. Does that sort of make sense? Yeah, keep going. The next one was the indications that we're looking for. So um, if you're not familiar with biotech investing for the listeners, indication is like what the FDA sort of calls diseases. Um, so the the popular science headlines that you see about psychedelics are usually psychedelics for some sort of mental health disorder, whether it's PTSD, depression, or anxiety. And that's great. And there needs to be lots of, you know, innovation done in that space. But it turns out that because of the neuroplasticity um, or the neuro, you know, neuroplasticity effects of psychedelics, there's potential to use them in all sorts of different indications outside of mental health. And so, you know, we've invested in companies that are looking at things like autism and fragile X syndrome, um, potentially targeting certain things like obesity, 
Um, and there's a stealth mode startup we've invested in that's looking at more like infl- inflammation diseases and you know things like Alzheimer's and that sort of thing. So by expand by investing in psychedelic research that is outside of the classic, you know, mental health disorders, I think you have a much greater chance of, you know, something sort of getting approved by the FDA. And you also are sort of expanding the total addressable market of psychedelics by taking it from just these mental health disorders and moving it out to these larger, this larger class of indications that could potentially be treated by, you know, some sort of neuroplastic effect. Um, And the last thing that I talked about was the time to market diversification. So these early stage drug companies, they take a long time to pay off, right? Um, It's usually five to 10 years or something. But in addition to the drug companies that we're investing in, we're also investing in companies that are, you know, creating accessories, ancillary services to the psychedelic community, um, some of which are able to generate revenue now. And so it's kind of nice to have like that uh, duration, um, cash flow, timing, sort of uh, diversification in the portfolio. So three of the companies we invested in are very close. One of them is already generating revenue. Two of them will probably be generating revenue for the next six months. And then we have these biotech plays that are, you know, cash flows way off in the distance. Will you describe what an early stage, one of these early stage companies looks like? Is it a couple scientists in a lab with an idea? Like what, what, what are you underwriting at the earliest of stages and what kind of infrastructure do they have at that point? Yeah, so the, the early, early stage um, biotech companies are basically, like you said, a couple scientists, usually a business guy, and then a lot of key advisors. Um, a lot of this stuff is built off of academic research. And so oftentimes you'll see like the guy that wrote the paper that inspired this whole thing being on the advisory board or one of the co-founders. Um, and yeah, they are basic. They basically have some idea for how to improve upon some type of drug. They have an idea of what receptors they want to target. Um, oftentimes they're using some kind of computer modeling to build up a large library of candidate molecules that might be a good drug. And um, then they are often outsourcing the actual synthesis of the chemical and the clinical trials to a third party, which is called a contract research organization. This is something that I don't think a lot of people know exists, but sort of like how computer software companies outsource all of their servers to you know AWS or something. There are these large contract research organizations, which most biotech companies outsource all of their actual um, manual process of research to, if that makes sense. And what are they patenting? Are they, at some point, I'm assuming they're filing a patent on a solution that they think works, or is it the process to create that solution or both? Like what gets patented or becomes kind of intellectual property? Um, so it could be, so the, the big intellectual property that you want to get is the composition of matter patent. So if you in, invent a truly new molecule, you get composition of matter on that. And that's a patent that lasts 20 years. It means that you can l- market it as a drug exclusively for 20 years. Um, you also talked about process. So there are certainly, um, I would say the most successful companies that are doing this sort of thing have some sort of unique process. Maybe it's a machine learning assisted drug design algorithm that one of the guys has created or some kind of IP around the creation that can get patented as well. Um, And then you also have process in the sense of like creating specific derivatives. So so we talked about the company Compass Pathways earlier. They're not inventing, they're working with psilocybin, which is the ingredient in magic mushrooms. They obviously didn't invent psilocybin. So the question is, like, what intellectual property do they have around, you know, this drug that they're creating? And um, while they didn't invent psilocybin, they did create a way to synthesize psilocybin and have it meet, you know, these specific purity standards, basically. And so they have a they have IP around the process of synthesizing the psilocybin. Um, And they also have when you run a clinical trial, whether it's on a drug that you invented or not, you get exclusive rights to that data for a certain period of time. So when you take Compass Pathways, will will there be a, a whole ecosystem of companies that are then taking that technology and using it, you know, however they're going to use it? Or like, how will how will customers work with Compass? Is it the end user that's actually taking the stuff or is it other businesses building it's the, on top It's of the it? end user. Okay. Yeah, it's the end user. And, and one of the things that's tough about the business that they chose to pursue is that 
yeah, they have this method of creating, you know, pharmaceutically pure psilocybin, but that's not to say that that's the only way of doing it, right? Um, people have been synthesizing psilocybin for a while. So this is another reason why I am less interested in the companies that are dealing with molecules that have been around for a long time and more interested in the companies that are developing new molecules. That said, there are um, interesting things that you can do with the existing molecules that do have real value. So one of the companies that we invested in uh, called Freedom Biosciences, they're working with ketamine, which is not technically a psychedelic, but oftentimes people associate it with psychedelics. And Ketamine is actually super powerful as an antidepressant. It's a very useful drug. But one of the problems with it is that unlike the other psychedelics, it does seem to have some addictive tendencies. Like people do occasionally get addicted to ketamine. And um, one of the things that Freedom Biosciences is working on is a thing, sort of a combination therapy, ketamine plus something else that makes you less likely to get addicted to ketamine when you're taking it. So that is... um, useful IP that doesn't involve necessarily changing the underlying drug. Is it fair if if you were to uh, think about it like alcohol, where it's like tequila gets you drunk, whiskey gets you drunk, uh, beer gets you drunk, wine gets you drunk, and then you now we go to psychedelics where it's like there's mushroom, psilocybin, ketamine, on and on. Can Do you describe each of those as a different type of like, why are they different, but they have kind of the same outcome in the end? Um, I would say that it's much, there's much more variance in the experience than alcohol, right? Okay. Like all, all alcohol, alcohol is alcohol. It's like the same substance, no matter what the you know rest of the drink is like. Um, with psychedelics, I was talking about the different receptors and, um, you know, all these drugs hit different receptors and even the ones that mostly target these specific receptors, they target lots of other receptors in different combinations. So there are receptors that are not responsible for the hallucination but still get targeted in certain ways by the different drugs so anyone that's done a fair amount of psychedelics will tell you that i mean the experience is totally different some of them are very visual some of them are much more introspective and less visual um some of them can make you think that you died and then got reborn it's it's very it's very very different so um yeah i i think the 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 variance in the psychedelic experience, there's so much more variance than in the alcohol experience or even the cannabis experience because you know, cannabis is, at the end of the day, a single plant. Um, th- this is part of the reason why I think psychedelics may have so many different possible use cases is because there are so many different molecules that target so many different receptors and different combinations. Is there any data around like you shouldn't take this stuff till you're 18 years old or are there people working on things that you know, could help children that have maybe been through a really traumatic experience with their parents or, you know, something bad that happened really early in life or these being saved for a later in life thing? Or do we even know yet? Yeah, I I don't think there's any data. I don't think anyone has done, you know, studies on kids taking these things. In general, I think that anything that is psychoactive is probably best to not give to, you know, people that are under 18 or, you know, if we're being real cautious, maybe under the age of 25, because your brain doesn't really stop developing until 25. Um, I I think it's, I didn't experience psychedelics until around the end of college. So I felt compared to many of my friends, almost like a, like a late bloomer. Um, and I, I actually think that was good. Like, I don't think it would have been good for me to do psychedelics when I was 15 or 16. Um, that said, I mean, these things do seem to very commonly help people that have had traumatic childhoods process those traumatic childhoods and maybe there is benefit to you know having people process the traumatic childhood earlier rather than later and i imagine that at some point there is going to be some research into this um there's one one company that i invested in is working on a project that is using extremely low doses of psilocybin to potentially increase pro-social behavior in autistic children um they haven't actually gotten to the human studies yet though but this would be a low dose that is subperceptual, so it would not actually cause hallucinations. Basically, a microdose, um, and I think that that is, you know, that, that's something to keep an eye on for sure. Okay, I'm I'm, I'm taking two steps back because we were on a roll with these kind of early stage companies. Okay, so they're they're developing this, um, you know, this new product. 
At what point do they introduce testing to people and how are the results kind of given back? Is it a, is it a verbal survey that the, the people that took it give on how they felt? Is it taking blood? Like, how do they know that they're heading in the right direction? Absolutely. So when you're dealing with the mental health disorders, depression, anxiety, PTSD, these things are diagnosed through, you know, a survey, basically. Um, and these are standardized surveys that, you know, the, the medical system has for each of these different, um, you know, indications. So there is no there is no blood test for depression or anxiety. It's kind of all about how you feel. And if you every once in a while, people will come up with some sort of, you know, bio biomarker for depression but uh the problem is is that you have situations where they say hey the, the biomarker says that you're not depressed and the patient's like well i actually feel really depressed and it's like all right well i guess maybe <laughs> i guess we should listen to you rather than the test right um on your question is to when do they introduce them to humans so um when you're inventing a new molecule you have to do animal studies first to prove that it's non-toxic um, and so there's always like the rat studies, and then you might do some other animal studies, and then you do phase one trials, which proves that it's safe in humans. And then you do phase two trials that actually proves that it's useful for the thing that you're claiming it's useful for in humans. Um, when you're dealing with something like psilocybin or LSD, which have been shown to be safe in humans for you know decades, you can skip those animal studies and those phase one trials and jump right into phase two. Um, whereas if you're dealing with the novel molecules, you have to start at the beginning, basically. Okay. So you went through what the data point of, I think there was $559 million that was uh, came into funding companies in 2021. Yeah, Let's, 595. Yep. Let's spend the next few minutes on, and you had a quote, uh, I can't remember where I pulled it, that just said, in 10 years, LSD will be mocked as a boomer drug, the most popular psychedelic 10 years from now hasn't been discovered yet. So let's just spend some time. You're obviously immersed in this world. Shock me with the things that might happen over the next 10 years that the average listener just has is nowhere near on their radar. Yeah. So, I mean, no guarantees that that turns out to be true. Yeah. That's my hope. <laughs> I um, hope it's true too. I, I, th I, th I think that the things that so I think that some of the most mind-blowing stuff that's going to happen with psychedelics is may actually not even be related to the mental health treatments or the recreational outcomes. I think that it might be in treating things like Alzheimer's and dementia, which are things that we currently have basically like no treatment for, but the uh, neuroplastic effects of psychedelics might be very useful in treating. Um, also things like people that had a traumatic brain injury or stroke being able to relearn how to speak due to the, you know, neuro plastic um stimulating effects of psychedelics i think that stuff might be more mind-blowing to me just because of how big of an impact it has on the actual patients than you know other things um so that to me is actually like the most exciting stuff on the total opposite end you know you're starting to see slowly and slowly these this uh fully legal kind of recreational experiences pop up here and here and again so ketamine is the one psychedelic that uh, doctors are actually able to prescribe legally um, because it's used as a painkiller. So every once in a while, I'll get invited to these things where they'll have, it'll be some kind of art event or something. And they actually have like a doctor there that legally gives people like pharmaceutical grade ketamine before you, you know, go in. And uh, these things are, no one's breaking the law. It's certainly a little bit weird. And I've not actually gone to any of these things, but the, these things do exist. And I think that we're going to, start seeing you know experiential um psychedelic experiences like kind of creeping into the popular culture maybe not um some of the other interesting stuff is the combination of psychedelics and, i don't mean to uh, i don't mean to uh to to interrupt but when when you talk about that it'd be like going to like a cirque de soleil or something where maybe you take something before you go see the show or is that what right. you meant by recreational kind of events? Yeah. Yeah. So imagine, you know, the, the specific event that I was referencing was, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard about this idea of breath work where, you know, you breathe in certain ways and it can supposedly, you know, enhance certain things. I don't know. But uh, 
it was at it was at a uh, geodesic dome structure and there was like a breathwork and structure and they were projecting cool things on the ceiling and you know there's a doctor there that gives everyone their prescribed pharmaceutical grade ketamine and then you're being led through breathwork while looking at these crazy patterns in the ceiling um sounds very interesting um I'm not a big fan of being in enclosed spaces with people breathing aggressively during COVID, but uh, so <laughs> that's part of the reason why part of the reason why I chose to not participate in that. But uh, yeah, so there there are all sorts of potential things like that, right? I mean, we already serve we already serve um, you know psychoactive substances at events like that, right? We have open we have bars, and uh, so you've got a question. You know, it, it's only a matter of time before other things start creeping in. Um, the last thing that I think is interesting is the intersection between psychedelics and other technologies. So there are lots of people that are investigating the intersection of psychedelics and virtual reality. One of the things we know about psychedelic experiences is that they can be very much influenced by the environment that you're in. And with virtual reality, you have the ability to create you know, innumerable environments that many of which don't even exist in the real world, right? So who knows what type of you know, effects you could have by creating you know, certain visual and audio stimulus while um, in the psychedelic experience. One of the companies that I invested in that I think is at least one of the sexiest elevator pitches out of all the companies is WavePaths. WavePaths creates optimal music for psychedelic therapy. The guy that created um, WavePaths, he did his PhD at Imperial College London, and the focus of his PhD was the impact that music can have on psychedelic experience outcomes. And so he's sort of the world's expert on how music can influence these psychedelic trips. And he's built this software platform that can customize generative music in real time based on the patient's preferences, based on the drug that's being taken, based on the type of experience they want to have just using music. And the, the, you know, the results of this are like can be pretty powerful from what I understand. So I think that just this general class of learning how to influence the psychedelic experience through external stimuli is a very fascinating area of research that we've barely scratched the surface of. Is any of this stuff being used as um, like a preventative? So, you know, for example, if you're going to go to war, you're going to see some bad stuff. Uh, it's kind of a given. And then you come back and you get treated for it after the fact. Hmm. Is any of, is anybody thinking about it? like, well, maybe you take this stuff before you go to war and as I was asking the question, I go, well, maybe we wouldn't go to war if everybody just took this stuff before we went. Because we realized, <laughs> the- um, but if you are about to go on the battlefield, is there anybody thinking about this? Is like, why are we waiting for the mind to have kind of been destroyed and then we're trying to bring it back rather than let's give them something up front that maybe they don't have that same trauma throughout, you know, whatever yeah. experience it is. So. Um, in general, talking about the military and psychedelics, my understanding is that all of the work has been done on people that have already gotten out of the army. Um, the army has not authored, or the military has not authorized any studies on active duty service members. Um, that said, I know I'm, there's this thing called DARPA, which is like the you know the military sort of advanced research program, and they have a request for funding out for non hallucinogenic psychedelics that could be used to treat PTSD. Um, yeah, I think, I think this is a very interesting question. It's kind of, it kind of opens up some interesting ethical, um, concerns, you know, if, if when, when soldiers, you know, leave the battlefield and get out of the military, you obviously want to treat them, right? Cause you don't want these people to spend the rest of their lives in this, you know, indescribable pain. But if you had something that allows people, allows people to just continuously go back to battlefield to, to battle and do things that are, you know, maybe not so good. You, you've got to wonder like, what does that make battle more blood? You know, does it make people more aggressive? Does it make a uh, war more, you know, uh, less humane because people are less worried about the long-term consequences. I'm not really sure, but I think we're very far away from actually having to deal with any of these questions because right now the military isn't actually testing this stuff on active duty service. Yeah. Members. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I would hope I would hope the first part of your first uh, guess would be right, which is that maybe we don't go to war yeah. <laughs> if we if people do this. <laughs> Just give of course, that would probably require that would probably require the other side to do it. There was actually an interesting PhD thesis written on um, they took twelve Israelis and twelve Palestinians and had them do psychedelics together, and uh, they had supposedly it helped them, you know, get over some of their differences, but small scale. 
Yeah, it's fascinating. Elon Musk had this, but it's so attributable to a lot of things. Somebody, I think it was Joe Rogan asked him, you know, how do you deal with all the haters online and the trolls and everything? And his answer was, well, they're not really, they don't really hate me. They just fight for this other army and this kind of fictional leader that they have has kind of told them that anything I say, you kind of attack. And he he was just saying, he said, most wars, if if the opponents actually knew each other before, they probably wouldn't hate each other. They're just going in shooting, but it's not because they don't even necessarily don't like each other. They would never know that. And it's kind of what you were just saying is, um, you know, you put 12 folks in a room that have totally different opinions and, you know, let them kind of hash it out and, and throw some psychedelics in the mix. You realize, I think a lot more of us would like each other than we than we give ourselves credit for. Oh, 100%. Yeah, I would definitely agree with Elon there. I know you're not a, a, a doctor. I know you're not a psychologist, but you have studied the effects of these things. Do you have any um, insight into what has happened to a brain to make it depressed? Why some people are depressed? Obviously, events can happen that other people haven't experienced, but there's some people that have had a really traumatic life and, the, and they seem to use that as fuel to be better. Is there something like physically that has happened to the brain that puts someone in a depressive state, genetics, anything that you can point your finger yeah. to? So I think, you know, even from the literature that I've read, it's kind of an open question. I think you have to differentiate between things that are caused by very specific traceable events. Like this is sort of the PTSD type situation where I was in a war or there was a car crash or I was assaulted and now I have PTSD. These are things that you can very easily attribute. And then there are these weird situations where there are people who have had great lives. They're not in poverty. They're in a good relationship and they still are very depressed, right? Um, psychedelics seem very helpful at helping the former, the people that have PTSD, um, where they can trace back the source of their issues to a very specific event because the psychedelics allow them to, you know, process that event and, uh, you know, maybe view it in a different light. I think that psychedelics still do help people that have these, you know, just general depression that doesn't seem to have any specific cause, but it's more difficult to, for any sort of drug or any sort of therapy to treat something when there's not something that you can attribute it to. Um, but yeah, there, there is a tremendous amount of correlation between uh, depression and just environmental factors. So if you're poor, you're more likely to be depressed. Um, for one, that's like a that's a major one. Yep. All right, I'll I'll maybe um, bring it home on a couple that you know people can use to maybe look forward to what could come. But uh, if you had to make a prediction, is what will be kind of the first mainstream case that you're again your average person walking down the street could pop into a store and get X. What are the the things that might be mainstream first for kind of the everyday user of psychedelics? Yeah. So right now in most states, you can go and legally get a ketamine infusion from a doctor. So that's that exists now. Um, MDMA for post-traumatic stress disorder will likely be approved within the next two years. And so people that are suffering from PTSD will be able to get prescribed MDMA psilocybin for depression will probably happen next before 2025. And that's all through, that's talking about sort of the FDA pharmaceutical route. On the other hand, you have legislative actions like what Oregon did, where they decriminalized all drugs. And they also passed a law that said that therapists are allowed to give psychedelic mushrooms to their patients. Um, and this is totally outside of the context of, you know, the FDA. I think that uh, everyone is watching Oregon to see how this sort of plays out. And I think we'll start to see certain states or at least certain cities replicate some of the things that they've done in Oregon over the next 18 to 24 months. How is Oregon so, doing? So it's hard to say because uh, they passed the laws, but the laws are like, okay, if if this law gets passed, then we go into a two-year period where we actually figure out all the details. And so these laws haven't actually gone into effect yet, even though they've been passed. So they're 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 having committee hearings all the time where they're talking about like what can what is considered a therapist you know someone that can give psychedelics to uh, their patients where are they actually supposed to get these drugs if it's illegal to grow them you know they're they're figuring all those details out but uh within the next year or so those laws will go into effect and then we'll be able to see what you just said the kind of the timeline of things that you might predict will be legalized is this something you can track online through the government or how what's 
driving you to these conclusions? So um, on the pharmaceutical side, there is a website that tracks all clinical trials related to psychedelics. Okay. Um, I can send you a link to that and you can post it in the show notes if you want to. I'll do that. Um, in, ter- in terms of the legislative, legislative actions, I don't know that there's a specific single source, but um, I can tell you that Oregon is kind of the, the main case study right now. And so I would watch what's going on in Oregon with Measure 109 and Measure 110. All right, man. This is, uh, this is fascinating stuff. Uh, I've, I've learned a ton. I'm, I, uh, it seems like it's early. It's like kind of the internet's getting started in the psychedelic world. Um, yeah. Is there anything you want to leave us hanging with that'll keep us interested in thinking, uh, that I didn't ask? You know, I think that, I think you asked some great questions and I think you covered most of the interesting things. So I don't know that I have anything to really add there. Okay. Love it. I did my job, Johnny. You've done it. <laughs> All right, Brom. I appreciate your time, man. This is uh, this was great, and uh, yeah, very grateful for your time. Thank you so much, Chris. Um, is it okay if I sort of plug my website and everything if people want to find me? Yeah. Why, why don't you leave us with how people can get in touch with you and, and learn more about what you're doing? Absolutely. So I'm I'm very active on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is the real Brom. Brom spelled B-R-O-M. Uh, the venture fund that we talked about is Empath Ventures. The website is empath.vc. Um, you know, the the fund is still open, so we are still raising, and we're you know investing in very cool companies. If you if you message me, I can add you to the email list, and you know keep you abreast of all the exciting things that we're doing. And um, I also have a podcast called The Integration Conversation, where I interview you know business leaders in the psychedelic space. So Google the integration conversation. Uh, it's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all, all the fun podcast platforms. And uh, if you're new to the psychedelic world, listening to some of those episodes might help you understand better you know, what's actually going on and what types of businesses are being formed in, um, in the space. So I think, I think that's where you can find me. And again, Chris, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. It was, it was great. I had a great time. Yeah, Brom, thank you so much. And I appreciate uh, the opportunity to invest with you, man. It's, it's, it's good stuff. Everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.